Speaking of that, there's a funny part where it's like, and he debased himself, and the things he yeah. did to debase himself in front of the Dark One, you would make your eyes water or something, and then, yeah. and then later on, like I think one of the Forsaken says, like, debase yourself before me or something, and I'm like, what? What do you want us to do? What are we doing here? Is like, yeah. is it getting kinky? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> Could be, you know, potentially. That's I heard that that's what Balsamon is all about. Like, all his about name it. starts with b- balls, obviously. So. <laughs> I'm kind of curious. What was he doing? <laughs> it's just whatever it is, is is so unbelievably profane that you just can't even comprehend it. Luke. All right. Okay. Guess I can comprehend a lot. Welcome, friends, to episode 210 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss the final third of Robert Jordan's 1990 novel, The Eye of the World. Well, hello there, tree brother. It's time to talk about the end of this book. Uh, It has been a fun project. We still have the show to finish out, but we're going to be finishing out the first book of The Wheel of Time here. Uh, and as a, as a, someone who's read this book for the first time, I am immediately interested to know uh, what your general thoughts are on it. Oh, just so much to talk about here. So I guess I would start by saying like expectations going into this third part for me. I kind of got full of myself a little bit. You know, it's kind of been very like referential towards Lord of the Rings. And I felt like I could I was picking up what was being put down to the point that I felt like I knew what the third act was going to be. And so going in, my theory, my my running theory was... We were going to get the party coming back together in Camelon. And then from Camelon, they were going to tr- start the trek to Tarvalon. And then along that way, something was going to happen with Matt that would like lure the Dark One and they would have some sort of skirmish battle of some kind. And then eventually they would get to Tarvalon, which is where I thought the Eye of the World may have been. It is kind of weird that they don't go to Tarvalon in this book. I know. And so on like s- smaller scale kind of you know, first book in a, in a large, massive series. And then and then he introduces, like, all these, like, really difficult concepts to juggle in a fantasy story, like being able to basically warp through portals mm, and, like, ways. Th- all kinds of stuff like that, that you're like, oh, shit, like, this, it starts to really go there. And then... It sounds like you were maybe a little bit overwhelmed by everything that happened. No, here at the I end. wouldn't even say overwhelmed. I was welcoming it all. I was excited because it was so much different than I was expecting. Because, like I said, I thought I knew where it was going, and it went in a completely different way, and it went very fantasy, which was something I was oh, sort yeah. of wanting from it. Because I think a lot of fantasy stories are, are afraid to, like, lean into too much of the magical elements because it this becomes- isn't like a uh, game of thrones or something where it's like oh we'll hint at some stuff and slowly build it's like no you're full on the deep end by the end of this book yeah. and i you know i find myself fully hooked at this point i want to i like leaves me in a weird spot now because i don't know when i'm going to be able to read the next book going forward with the ne- with the series if we're going to do it for the show or because the show is sort of passing this first book here so we're gonna have to try to figure that out but i am very much looking forward to reading the second book at some point. Yeah, and honestly, I would truly like to hear from our listeners who have enjoyed our uh, Wheel of Time coverage. Would you want us to do episodes on the second book, the third book, things like that um, as we go into season two, maybe at some point before, since some of that stuff is already coming up in the in season one of the show? Um, how would you like ideally like to see us cover it? Um 
not saying we'll necessarily do it because we still want to cover lots of other things. And, and obviously, like, this could become a Wheel of Time show because there's so much material um, going forward. You know, how we are going to tackle this. Same thing with, like, The Expanse. Like, I would love to do all these episodes on further Expanse books, further Expanse seasons. But it gets kind of overwhelming when I start thinking about it because, like, well, that's going to be three months out of the year to even get, like, remotely anywhere, you know, like, progress along the series. So I don't know how to do it. Um, it, Once again, TV shows are hard for us. Movies are always much simpler. Um, So as much as I love talking about Wheel of Time, let us know. Maybe maybe the the thing we do is we just cover season one and then... uh, you know, it becomes something that we can just read on our own and, and maybe just reference here and there, but not do episodes on. So I, I'm cur- truly curious what people think of that. Um, so real quick, though, for me, general thoughts. My memory of this book was always very hazy, especially in, with the final third of it and the what happens at the eye of the world. And we'll get into specifics of that. Once again, I, I did find it to be a bit overwhelming with how much happens, how fantasy it gets. Um, how just kind of bonkers and wild it gets at the end there. Um, and so again, like, even though I just read it, I'm still a little hazy on what exactly happened. Uh, it's kind of funny. Like I was reading this plot description and it's like, okay, well this helps me figure out what exactly happened here, having it laid out simply. Um, because reading it is, it's, it's a bit surreal at times. Um, but before all of that, we get some cool stuff in Camelin, um, that I did remember a lot of that, like that stuff that has stood the test of time and st- stuck out in my memory um some important sort of character introductions and then a lot of the stuff with the ways i think is very fascinating a lot of times in fantasy stories you look at the map that they include in the book and you're like they're never going to get to this location you know it's interesting to think about what's out there and they reference it here and there oh yeah this book like very clearly makes it evident that going forward you're gonna be able to jump all over the place you're gonna you get to, to explore the entire map at some point yeah well yeah, <laughs> uh, it's the. I think it's safe to say that most locations uh, get touched on, at least if not fully explored throughout the course of the series. Um, okay, so I have three paragraphs of summary to get to, but before that, a couple of announcements. Um, one, we have decided we are going to change our format a little bit. We've thought better of it, and we've decided we want to finish out Wheel of Time this year. So we are going to push our Last Looks episode into the first week of 2022, um, just kind of looking back at the previous year, and then we will be dropping our final show episode at the end of this year with one bonus episode, (laughs) if you want to call it that, sandwiched in, and that's going to be our Christmas episode this year, um, which is going to be a special kind of odd choice for a Christmas movie, um, and we will announce that at the end of the episode, like what exactly it's going to be, but that'll be what is actually coming next in your feed. Um, So pay attention to the end of the episode for that. One other thing is there was an interesting uh, article by Forbes, I think, where it was referencing some stuff that Brandon Sanderson has said about the show, specifically the first few episodes and some of the changes they made. Uh, So I want to talk about that with you So I'm going to save that also for the end of the episode. So we'll finish out all the book talk, and then we'll talk about Brandon Sanderson's comments on the show. So if you're interested in that, make sure to stick around for that as well. So once in Camelin, Matt confines himself to his bed and seeks to avoid all contact with outsiders, while Rand makes the acquaintance of an ogier named Loyal. Loghain Ablar, a recently captured false dragon, is being paraded through the streets of Camelin. 
While seeking to catch a glimpse of him, Rand climbs a wall and accidentally falls over the top into the palace garden where he meets Elaine Tracond, heir apparent to the throne of Andor, her brother Gawain, and her half-brother Galad Damodred. When Rand's presence is discovered by the palace guards with Galad's help, he is taken into custody despite Elaine's protests and brought before Queen Morghese and her Aes Sedai advisor, Elida. Elida prophetically identifies Rand as a dangerous individual, but Queen Morghese decides that she does not have sufficient evidence to imprison him. Okay, so I'm going to stop here and I want to talk about the events basically in Camelin uh, leading up to Moraine uh, coming back because these are some characters that get introduced, uh, a, a, and I think it's fair to say a surprising turn of events, um, and I'm really curious to know your thoughts on this part. Yeah, uh, first thing I have to address, right as soon as we got to Camelin, uh, Tom is brought up, and there's a barkeep who's like, yeah, that guy's not dead. And yeah. I, was like, <laughs> I was like, I agree with you, man. I was like, that guy's definitely <laughs> fucking not dead. Yeah, yeah. It's like a friend of Tom's because they went to the they went to the inn that he had. I think his name is Gil, right? Yeah, Gil. something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, them getting to the city. I love the way that they experience it, and then of it's course, way Rand, bigger than anything they've ever seen, and they're like, oh, yeah. oh my god, exactly. And you know, it's like big city after big city. They're seeing a bigger city, seeing a bigger city, and each one's more amazing. And then this one is like, even the 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 wagon driver on the way in is like, this is the most beautiful city in the world. Like, ask anyone. And like, you know, some people might feel differently, but it is the best city in the world. And I got to say, like, as someone who grew up in a smaller ish town, um, the first time I, I we drove through like New York City, like or any big city like that, I remember just being sort of overwhelmed with the size and immensity of it. And that's someone who grew up watching movies where big cities were portrayed. Right. So if you can imagine what it would have been like to be someone truly from the country before the time of television where maybe you've just heard people describe cities or seen a painting of one, maybe. Like, you probably have just no concept. So, like, I feel like he does a great job of evoking that just sense of awe at the sheer amount of people. And then there's a really interesting mix of... It's not, like, completely shitting on a city. Like, oh, it's so gross and so dirty. In, in like, he, there is some of that, but then also it's just awe-inspiring, and there's, and there's such a... Um, cosmopolitan um collection of people that uh i don't know it's like it's like the good and bad both is presented and um i didn't get the sense that like robert jordan hates cities instead of more it's like yeah there's good and bad um but it's it's kind of overwhelming to someone like rand uh right i appreciate as we see the city through rand's eyes he's also like fascinated to see this dragon reborn and so he's like or false dragon sorry false dragon and eventually he like climbs this tree in the fantasy story, sometimes things have to happen where it's like, yeah, this character would do this. And then these things would happen for these like crazy cross sections and intersections of people's lives. Like I buy into it enough, but it is funny to think like he climbs a tree and falls in, meets the queen, meets all these like super important people. <laughs> yeah. The princess and her. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I loved it because, again, that's like he, you're seeing sort of the low points of the city. You're seeing like the actual royalty um, since we're living through Rand's eyes and um, all that stuff that the queen I was thinking that it was going to lead to more because it felt like he, they weren't just going to be like, oh, on your way. Yes, as you were. Yeah. And But they kind of did. You know what I suspect? And I could be wrong about this, obviously, but uh, it's just, just like the way books get written. I suspect that Robert Jordan had the Eye of the World stuff pretty early on for like the way this book was going to end. And then he started planning out books two, three, four, 
And this was in the, in the process of getting book one published. It was like becoming clear that this was going to be a series. He was going to be able to continue writing. I actually read that books one and two, I believe, were released the same year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think within within a short amount of time of each other. Yeah. But like, he, I think he was already writing book two, like before book one was even out. For sure. Had to be. Yeah. But my point being that at some point along the way, and like I don't know if he's ever outlined this. At some point along the way of writing book one, it became clear that book two, three, I think it was going to be a series, right? And I think the stuff with in Camelin was added later. Was sort of he went back and was like, well, I need to set up the story going forward with that, and then um, maybe even some of the allusions to Tarvalon. Um, and all of that stuff of like making it seem like we're going there because I, that's I mean, a dangling Fred going forward, right? Like we got to go to Tarvalon to see what's going on there. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, the Tinkers feel like that to me as well as a, yeah. as a group of people that we just like got a glancing blow of. We sort of understand their vibe. And then going forward, it's very clear that like that's for later books. Yeah. A, the mentions of the Aeol, like lots of stuff. It's like you don't get it in book one here. Um, so very quickly, it feels like this book doesn't really stand alone as a, a self-contained novel there's too many dangling threads but in some ways it, it it also feels like he wanted to provide a somewhat satisfying end to where you know if everything goes poorly and he doesn't end up getting future books he wanted this yeah. book to feel like uh, it was self-contained um more so than you get with later books it's like i, I feel like this one almost feels like you get an end but then not really yeah, you kind of have to do that, especially with the first book. Like I, you want there to be like the three act structure rising and falling. Everything feels like it's it's all fallen within that sort of framework. And you're like beginning, middle, end. And here's the end of this story, although there's a ton of lingering stuff and we'll carry that forward. But I was thinking about that going into this story and this third act here. I was like, the, it's always really hard to stick the landing yeah. in a story like this, especially and I was surprised that overall it really did stick the landing for me because it felt like, for one, unexpected, and two, it, in, as much as it's referencing all these other fantasy materials, it felt like wholly its own. Mostly thing. Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Mostly Lord of the Rings. But by the end, I'm like, this is this is its own thing. Like it's found its own yeah. path by the end of this book. Cool. So I let's go a little bit chronologically here. Uh, you meet an Ogier named Loyal. His name's Loyal. So basically. You know he's going to be a good dude. Um, right. What did you think? Of, what did you think of Loyal? What did you think of the Ogier? I loved it. Uh, love his loved. For for one, I was bummed because it seemed pretty quickly that he wasn't going to join. Like Rand was like, "No, you can't." He he wanted to join along. He's like, "You seem so special." And he he talks about the Taviran. Yeah, and he's he's the first person to bring it up, and that was a concept that I was like, okay, this is this is like going to make a lot of characters important going forward. And I thought that Taviran was maybe the same thing as like dragon reborn type thing but, but it's, it's clearly not it's it's, like, it's different yeah yeah and i liked that for sure because i was like okay so now all these characters can be just as important as the dragon reborn uh you know in a sense because they're affecting this weave but uh along the way he's basically like left his people and it's sort of frowned upon to do that and he's seeking knowledge and i just love that in a, in a character yeah. uh and then he's like i want to come with you on your adventures and Rand's like no no you probably shouldn't do that but someday we'll play games together or whatever and i was bummed because i was like what a cool element to add to a party to have like loyal this like ogier and he's he would mistakes him for a for a trollic at first which i yeah. loved everyone does everyone like in the city everyone's afraid of him and stuff and anytime people see him for the first time they assume he's a trollic um but yeah just cool to have a character like this and, and a cool race to introduce um going forward they seem very important from all the things that i'm 
you know, they have this old knowledge. He's an ancient person. He's like 90 years old or something at this point. But he's like and, a but young. He's, he's young, yeah. He's a young Ogier, but ancient in terms of a human. To me, this, to me, the loyal and, and the Ogier feels like a mix up between uh, Chewbacca and Treebeard. Yeah, I can see that for sure. <laughs> a little bit, right? Like he is very Treebeard. He's very trained. Um, yep. You know, he talks about being, oh, don't be hasty. And I think he even says at one point stuff like that. It's but like, it's funny because at the end we get like a legit Treebeard character. That's true. Yeah, we still got the green man coming. Um, I, I like that he is uh, a calming sort of presence and he has all this like he has a lot of important lore that he can drop on the party when he when we need that so it's not all just coming from moraine and stuff like that you know it's like it's good to get another source i was a little bit worried that they were introducing this character and then he would join the party and immediately get killed like i was really worried for him (laughs) in the ways during and when they were in the ways i was like oh shit dude is this really how it's gonna go down right uh, so let's talk about that Taviran thing though, because that is something, I don't know if you remember this, but in a previous episode, and I don't even know which one for sure it was, like it might've been a rival. It might've been some later project where you're talking about time travel and we're we talking about fate. I feel like this is a thing that has come up multiple times on this podcast. I mentioned something about how, well, there's this concept in, in, a, in a Wheel of Time novel where people can sort of like everybody else is confined by fate. But then there are certain individuals who can sort of bend fate to their will. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they are. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea of like fate is somewhat set. The, the weave is somewhat set. It's going to be we- woven in a certain way. Yet there are certain individuals who can change things and can... Um, bend fate to their will and then also just like fate bends around them um and how first off like how does that work within a story and then also just Mm -hmm. that concept in like reality what do you think of that (laughs) i really like because if i was to to make a theory now is that like along the way they can get more and more they can change things more and more drastically but currently moraine like when she talks about it she's like it's she's noticing moments where the pattern is breaking the pattern like the pattern that they're supposed that everything goes according to is just slightly tweaked here and there and you're like oh wait that's not quite the exact same as the pattern but the wheel wills as the wheel weaves and all that kind of stuff so like Mm -hmm. you know explained away by that but i like also the big detail that's brought in is when they're together they affect it even more so so having three of them creates like this web like Mm -hmm. is how she describes it and i love that uh because basically you know these these, i like having this like faded thing that has to happen and these characters being so affecting to this story they're so important to the story and they're so powerful not even like maybe not even purposely but they're so powerful in the way that like they can change fate and in that way break the cycle you know stop it ultimately forever and defeat evil and you know I, I potentially but overall cool concept just a really difficult thing to juggle within a story again jordan just like he's not afraid to play with these like concepts that could break the story very easily what do you think about in real life do you think that that's something that could happen in our in like real like do i believe you're asking me if i believe in fate at that are point, there to out there <laughs> i don't know if i believe in fate you know what i mean i don't yeah. know 
it's that's a tough question to answer but you know i like to think so i like to think if if there is some faded path that we can we can sort of still make our like we can still yeah. uh you know forge our own path so you're you're, you're kind of arguing we're all to veer in and we can all sort of affect fate yeah i hope so interesting uh it's just something that you know i feel like you kind of can't have it both ways but robert jordan wants to have it both ways like i feel like yeah. you can't have things be faded and set in stone and then also things not be um, well it's like this is his story this is how he, he lays it out though right it's like yeah. they always have been faded but yeah. now these characters in this specific story that I'm telling, it breaks because yeah. they're so special. Yeah. And it's also like the two forces push and pull at each other. So it makes for good you know, good drama, which is what you want. Um, one thing that I think is bullshit, and I, we're not going to talk a lot about the show, but I love that in the show they added um, Egwene as a, a fourth Taviran. Um, and then I think Nynaeve, there's even a mention like maybe her too in the I'm show. I'm pretty certain she's the um, fifth, yeah. There is a moment in this book where I think Moraine says, and maybe you know, she said like you're you're probably not Taviran or something like that to Egwene. Like there's some sort of like uh, uncertainty about there just being the three, um, mm-hmm. but we hear we always hear about the three going forward. Um, I think that's bullshit. Uh, Egwene should have absolutely been one. I mean, if you look at the events of the series, there's no reason why she wouldn't be one. Um, so it's it's just a weird thing that Robert Jordan decided only the guys get to be the the Deviren for some reason. I don't know. Very odd. And then the other thing that I think works really well is he has taken the idea of like plot armor and contrivance and said, you know what? That's a facet of this world. I can do whatever I want now with these characters because right. they are Tavir. <laughs> so they can they can fall into the palace and meet the queen because they're Tavir and they can do whatever, you know, the thing bends around them. So you can't say like, well, that seems incredibly improbable. It's like, yeah, that's the point. They do improbable <laughs> shit. I can make anything I want happen. Um, so it's kind of it's like kind of funny because like as a writer, it's like giving yourself an excuse to just do improbable shit all you want because no one can really argue when you yeah. like that's a specific power these characters have <laughs> there's keeps being uh, and i'll be interested there's got to be more than just the three Taviran, i would assume but i i don't know i guess we'll see you going forward and uh moiraine keeps talking about how you know so and so no they're safe because they're part of the pattern and there's no way that it would end here so she's like us in the same like we're that the, the character speaking to the audience saying like there's no way. Come on. The story's like just beginning. There's no way that this character's gone yet. <laughs> uh, okay. So we meet the uh, Elaine Tricond, her brother Gawain, her half-brother Galad. Uh, let's start with those three. What do you think of them? Yeah. I mean, it's tough to, from the small amount we got from them, it's tough to like, I'm sure they're going to be very important going forward and book readers like f- who've read farther are like, James, come on, pick up on the, on the <laughs> hints. But I mean, not a ton there for me to pick up on other than obviously there's a tension between Rand and the princess and like obviously Egwene. Attention, has- uh, perhaps a attraction. Okay. P- perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the end, she says some, she says something about like, finding him handsome or something like I think specifically Elaine and, and, and this becomes kind to me in my opinion kind of a pattern in uh, Robert Jordan's books is a lot of like bumbling dudes who who are completely oblivious to women finding them they finding them attractive and then tell the women like come out and say it to them um, and then they're like oh I didn't even realize um, I don't know what why but that is just something that I feel like shows up again and again in his books um, yeah. I mean, male fantasy stuff, it's very clear that this is like a wish fulfillment story for like Robert Jordan and maybe even 
you could say potentially but also definitely for his readers like i felt like i feel like a lot of people probably responded boys specifically men who were like wanting that that fantasy were you know well it's kind of an inversion of like the expected quote-unquote role right like i mean i feel like we are breaking that down somewhat these days uh but when i was growing up all the expectation was on me to be the person who said something to like a girl I liked, right? Like she's not going to say anything to you. You have to say it to her. I I don't know if that's even true, but that's just like, that's That's why it's a wish fulfillment. Like in that, in that scenario, like the wish fulfillment would be like, I don't have to do anything. They just come to me, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You meet the princess and she lets you know that she finds you handsome. Yeah. I I totally think that's going on. Um, I don't know. I'm just, it's something I've noticed. Robert Jordan has a very specific way of writing women and writing his relationships. And some people love it. Some people can't stand it. Um, And then, yeah, we got Gawain, her brother, who seems the more reasonable of the brothers we meet. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we meet Galad, her half brother, who is, uh, he never tells a lie apparently. And he uh, is very, upset at the idea of this peasant being in the in the palace because he yeah. seems dangerous and dirty um mm-hmm. what was your what was your thoughts on galan seemed like a straight shooter like other <laughs> than the fact that he you know other than the fact that he was kind of being a dick uh yeah seemed like the kind of like righteous person of okay. the group per se i mean i mean and it is kind of weird to have a random guy plop down into the garden and all of a sudden your sister's now like no this is my friend and he has guest rights right and you're like uh I don't think you should be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a he's a Taviran, so just deal with it. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, and then they're all brought before the queen, who Rand uh, seems like he has a little bit of a crush on. I don't know. Like he repeatedly is like, "Oh my god, she's so hot," um, you know, uh, and 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 majestic at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. And then he's like, and then Elaine is just like her but younger. Um, it gets a little. It gets a little odd. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to say here this: we've gotten this backstory of Tom, right? And I believe Tom was somehow like connected to this queen, like like yeah. kind of like dating, kind of talking. He was a court. We hear that he may have been a court bard at one point, and he wasn't always a gleeman. And that he uh, there was something maybe uh, improper, right? So so basically, they had a relationship of sorts, and then the stuff went down with um, his nephew, I believe, Owen. Yeah. And that's when he like took off. And I guess because he left in that way, she was upset with him. And upon his return, he was not welcomed back and kind of like almost killed, basically. Like they were like he was like just chased out of the city with almost the, you know, I think they said something about like the hangman's news, something similar to that, where he like almost was put to death because she was so pissed. So so he can't really show his face there, but he's like whispered about and stuff, obviously, still. Yeah. Some some lore for Tom, the the yeah. quote unquote dead character, dead guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get Elida. Uh, she is sort of the Aesidai in in residence, I guess, uh, with Queen Morgase, and 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 Elida does some prophesizing about Rand. Well, I mean, the throne room scene was was sort of the most obviously obvious to me as important because there's this moment where like some people love the Aes Sedai in the city, some people hate the Aes Sedai, mm-hmm. and then there you get the implication that she's potentially like willing things in certain directions over the queen and and kind of um, yeah you know creating influence, but then the queen is like <laughs> perform a prophecy on this child, mm-hmm. and then she does, and that stuff's important. Obviously, like I said before, there's some it's it's. I can't remember the specifics because this is how Jordan does it. Is he tries to make it a little bit vague, but it's mm-hmm. very clearly important. But it's it just talks about how 
he's either going to like destroy the world or save it or he'll be important or, you know, and like the longer he's around, the, lo- the more of a threat he is, that sort of stuff is yeah. said. And uh, but not out and out. This is the Dragon Reborn, just that like dangerous sort of path ahead for this character. Right. Uh, definitely some ominous stuff gets gets uh, referenced here. But, yeah, it's very vague. Um, there is a moment that I thought you might have found interesting, and that's where they noticed the heron mark on his oh, sword. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah and- that's still kind of a mystery to me. I know that at this point, nearing the end of the story, we get the idea that it's like a blade master sword. Yeah. And I think it's clear that, you know, it's Tan's sword, and it's important, but I can't i don't have the information yeah. unfortunately like put it all together but i mean like you saw the reaction right like right uh, right like all the guards it says they like all kind of grabbed their swords and looked like they were prepared to die and like gareth brian like steps in front of the queen and, like all oh, there's this like huge reaction to the rec- to him when they see this mark on his blade so you get the the idea that a blade master must be like truly dangerous right yep um and Definitely. they're all like oh god and then there's like a funny moment they were like well that's not his sword, but it is, and I can tell that it fits him. I think Gareth Brand says that, and it's mm-hmm. like, okay, I don't know what that <laughs> love means, it. Taviran, <laughs> I just like. So there's like one point later where Loyal, I think he kind of interjects at one point. He's like Taviran, like 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 <laughs> to like, and now I hear that all the time. I hear Loyal over my shoulder every time I'm going like, well, that's awfully convenient. I hear Loyal. <laughs> love it it's so funny because like we're poking fun but like i really did enjoy a lot of this stuff like just in the story oh i mean i'm having fun i hope i'm not right. it doesn't sound like i'm poking fun like it, it honestly it's like it's kind of cool it's kind of clever to do that to like come up with this like excuse to do with whatever you want um because you can't argue with it like that's their power is they can like do shit that's improbable and shit will happen to them that is just lucky um yep that's just how it's gonna go. <laughs> um, okay, let's read the next chunk here. So Moraine, Lan, and Nynaeve rescue Egwene and Perrin from the White Cloaks, just as one overzealous individual is contemplating their premature execution. Together they travel to Camelon, where they are reunited with Matt and Rand, who has only just returned from his adventure at the castle. Moraine immediately diagnoses Matt's sickness as the corrupting influence of the ruby-hilted dagger and she uses her powers to diminish its effects, although she cannot heal him or completely break his attachment to it. Loyal warns Moraine of the threat of the Eye of the World, a threat independently corroborated by a story heard by Perrin and Egwene while among the Tuathon, uh, and by the dreams of Rand, Matt, and Perrin. In order to reach the Eye of the World in time to stop the Dark One, they must take the Ways. The group is guided along the dangerous Ways by Loyal and emerge in Shinar, where they meet the Lord Agomar Jagad, in the fortress of Faldara, on the eve of the expected battle against the Trolloc army. Padden Fane is found climbing the walls of Faldara. He is taken into custody and interrogated by Moraine and Lan, who discover that Fane is a dark friend whose mind has been specifically molded to find the Dark One's quarry. It was he who aimed the attack on Edmund's field. Following that attack, he was still the Dark One's bloodhound, and he followed the companions to Camelon through the ways and to Faldara. Okay, so... Backing all the way up, Moraine, Land, and Nynaeve rescue Egwene and Perrin uh, from the White Cloaks. I thought this was some cool Land moments that I was happy oh, to get. Love it. What, what did you think yeah. of this part? Oh my god, loved it. So I wanted to bring this up because I, when I was reading it, I was like, I need to mention this on the podcast. When <laughs> I'm reading a story, sometimes I get like so cinematic in my own head, and uh-huh. like 
there's this there's this feeling that I get sometimes and it's almost like a like a tunnel vision that I get while I'm reading the story. And like as it was building up to this uh, escape attempt mm-hmm. with like Nynaeve is going down and lands just like boom disappeared. He's mm-hmm. like like she like looks back and he's gone. Yeah. And like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. And what I mean by tunnel vision is like I couldn't put the book down if I wanted to. Okay, like, I'm gotcha. so invested in in that moment in the story. So, you know, Nynaeve is cutting the bonds slightly of the horses and then boom, lightning bolt hits. And like I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be insane. <laughs> so lightning bolts just raining down. Then like everything goes black. Land like shows up and he just starts like assassinating people but yeah. i think he actually leaves a couple of people alive i think he like knocked enough. i think he not he's like knocking them all unconscious and shit like in fact i think it's byar this guy who's been menacing perrin like tries to draw down on him and he just like disarms him and like hits him on the head or something yeah, so he just awesome. knocks him out easily like no problem great and he keeps like disappearing into the shadows and coming back very he's like batman, he's like, like very like very batman like <laughs> yeah so uh when he didn't kill that guy i was like perrin is gonna wish that you killed that guy at some point because he fucking he you Perrin killed his friends and then this guy captured Perrin and like tortured him and beat the hell out of him and stuff and I'm like that guy probably should have died but hey <laughs> let's leave him alive because of Taviran. <laughs> uh huh. There's more so, story uh, to be told there. You're, you're, yeah. you're predicting. Okay. So the uh, they get you know they get rescued and then I love that because I thought they were gonna have to go back and rescue Nynaeve. I love that Nynaeve like found her own way and brought an extra horse and like was capable in that moment and and actually helped out the party to, Mm -hmm. to, because otherwise they would have been slowed down by each person, by multiple people being on horses and stuff. So uh, that was awesome. And I think this is the, the escape. I think this is the first time where uh, the the group recognizes or notices Perrin's eyes are starting to change. And we hear talk about this, all this wolf connection. And we mentioned that a little bit last time, but I want to know like further thoughts on this stuff with these, these, happenings with Perrin love it I mean like there's there it's one of the coolest powers that's been introduced for <laughs> sure so far um I think of the three I would, would probably so far rather be a wolf brother or whatever he's called at some point than have a cursed dagger or be you don't like, want to be possessed by a dagger <laughs> I'd rather not I'd rather not have that and being the dragon reborn sounds like a lot of responsibility so like <laughs> You know, it seems like he's got the, the the cool gig so far. I'm into that. Yeah, I'll just say just wait on Matt because in later books you'll find out more like what makes him different than the other two. Um, yeah. There's not a lot of it here because it, it kind of gets subsumed by the dagger. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I liked when we got him back, though. Like, yeah. I, you know, that's a little bit later. But once the, the, they kind of overcome the, the curse that's on him a little bit. It's about to happen. Yeah, they, they go, yeah. They, they meet up with them and then and then. Uh, Rand's like, yeah, Matt's been uh, kind of sick or something. Go take a look at him. And then they go in there, and I don't know about you, but I had very strong exorcist vibes when yeah, they walk in this room. I can see that. He's like, he's like, basically, uh, what's her name from The Exorcist, like in the bed, just like cursing, ah, like yeah. his head might as well have spun around and spit up, you know, green vomit um, at them because he was clearly being possessed. And then Moraine's like. I have to take on the devil and like, like get out cast, of here. He gets them out and then she's in there for like a long time doing battle yeah. with him and eventually is able to uh, perform an exorcism somewhat, although she doesn't fully. Um, yeah. Like he still has the dagger. There's like a chilling like, moment where Rand notices he still has the dagger and it's like, oh shit, well, I thought you got rid of that. And it's like, no, no, no. I'm not strong enough. That's going to have to have him at Tarvalon maybe. Right. Another fun continuing thread that I'm excited to see. I hope that he like attains some sort of like dark powers because that he can contain that he can like contend with because of his connection to Balzaman or something like that. That would be cool going forward if he had like some some dark power that's not supposed to be used by people of the light or good people, but he can sort of use that. would be cool. One thing we hear is that uh, Lan talks about this Elias 
the character who is you know sadly absent from the show so far, um, mm-hmm. at least as much as we've seen. And uh, I like the little detail that Land drops that he basically taught him like how to fight, or at least like yes. some of how to fight. He um, was a former warder. Former yeah. warder, like yeah. yeah. What do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, I love when badass characters know badass characters, right? <laughs> right? So you're like, oh yeah, which is why I'm already bummed that this character hasn't shown up in four episodes of the show. So I will be, you know, eagerly awaiting his arrival, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But all of them coming back together is a big moment as well. Um, because yeah. you sort of didn't know when that was going to happen. You, yeah. I felt like it was going to happen for sure. You didn't know when and how. Well, and like, once again, look at like Game of Thrones. Uh Characters get separated. I don't want to spoil things for that in case anyone cares, but like characters get separated in that and those books. And uh, it's a long time, if ever, that they see each other again. You know, in this case, nice to see everybody come back together. I love that. Like Moiraine, like as soon as they got back, she's like, let me fix this. Let me heal you. Let me do this. Like she's like, let me make sure this group stays together this time. You guys better not fucking run away again. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it was it was I was happy to see everybody back together. And and like you said, I, I keep thinking about something you said in one of the last episodes. Like, this isn't George R. R. Martin writing a story about, like, characters constantly dying and everything being very bleak at all times. I mean, you could tell that the tone is different, right, in this series. Right. Yeah. And I, I like that, though. Like, like yeah. I think that there's, there's there, you know, there's a good, obviously, room for both, but there's a good reason to have a story like this as well. And I've, mm-hmm. I've found it to be really fun so far. And I'm sure as time goes on, it gets a lot darker and more bleak. But for for a first book, it's it's I've liked the tone. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the tone... Like sure, things get darker, and there are there are lots of like heavy moments and stuff. But like the tone of Wheel of Time is the tone of Wheel of Time. Like it, it is. I don't know. Maybe people disagree with me there, but like to me, it always walks this line of like there's some darkness, there's some violence, there's some of this and that. But like there's like a core of hope and like light prevailing, and like kind of like Lord of the Rings, right? Like it skirts along some darkness, but like you kind of feel safe with Tolkien, like. And that's kind of how it is with Robert Jordan. It's like you kind of know he's not going to go to certain places. I don't know. Um, and that's one of the things that, like, when I read Game of Thrones back in the day, I was coming off of this series. Like, I had read this series, Lord of the Rings and stuff, and that's why Game of Thrones felt so different to me, or Song of Ice and Fire, when I read those books for the first time. Um, and I think a lot of people have are at these days are having the opposite um, introduction to fantasy, right? Like they've they've watched Game of Thrones. Maybe it's the first fantasy they ever watched, or they know Lord of the Rings and that. And then like then they're going to something and they're going like, oh, it's kind of nice to not be so grim. It's just funny to me that that has like become the standard now. Whereas for, like when I was reading, like that was not at all. It was like the idea of a world where it was where like good didn't always prevail actually felt different to me. Um, yeah. Anyway, I know we're gonna get in the weeds here. I but. mean, it was also thing. The, the, I think stories go in trends too. I right. think across the board, fantasy and everything. Yeah. In movies in general, I can definitely speak to around like you know the late '90s, early 2000s, post 9/11, that sort of like early 2000s period. Like people, it, it, things did get dark. Like movies got grittier and darker and and like yeah. less colorful and more serious and and like you know I think that we're we're maybe now in a time where we've flipped back the other way because we got so much of that. And then we got the game of Thrones. We got a lot of those kinds of shows that affected stories. And now we're, now we're at a time where I think some lighter stories are like needed, especially nowadays. Like people are like, I need something light to escape the bleakness of what we're in right now. It's funny though, because the, the, uh, it always defies that sort of generalization in some ways, because I also heard recently that like the horror genre is experiencing a huge resurgence resurgence right now. 
and mm-hmm. um, really of the last like five years. And um, it, it had been dormant for a long time. And right. now it's really coming back and we're seeing a lot of like really interesting horror being written. And, you know, it's horror. So it's not <laughs> it's not that right. lighter tone stuff. So it's not like it's a yeah, yeah, but it's still a form of escapism in a different way. I think different like, way, it's, yeah. it's like you can you can look at horror and kind of know it's a different yeah. world. And I guess you could say the same for fantasy, though, obviously. Well, and like uh, the question always is, and this is something that I think is important for creators to think about, something I think about a lot in the stuff I write, because you always have a decision to make about like, am I going to take, there's darkness, right? Do I want to show that darkness in a way that feels hopeless or feels suffocating? And and, and in a way I'm trying to represent maybe the way I feel in 2020, (laughs) the way I feel about politics, the way I feel Mm -hmm. like sometimes you can feel like, there's not a lot of hope and maybe there's a thread of hope, right? But it's not the overwhelming sense, right? Like it's really mm-hmm. hard to remain hopeful in the face of all of this. Um, things like that, like versus like I am safe in the knowledge that good will prevail um, and that I am in a cozy story and I don't feel that danger because I, I don't experience that in my day-to-day life. So I want to experience that in my fiction. And these are decisions you got to make going into whatever given project you're doing about like what kind of style you're going to have. Um, and sometimes I think that comes organically out of people. Like that's just the story that they always write. And then sometimes I think it is a conscious de- decision that is made um, for what kind of story you want to write. I definitely do that more. To me, it's like I can write in either mode <laughs> and I have to make a decision about what I want to do. Yeah, I like that too. Like it, it is clear like to paint with a broad brush and say like a generation is formed by these things and that's why stories are like this. Yeah. It's a pretty small sample size kind of thing. The idea that like the artist goes in and, and like with intention says like this is the kind of story like what comes out of you? How does the story feel like it's working better? Is it is it does it is it more suited to a darker tone with like bleakness like you talked about or maybe something that has some more hope to it and something yeah. that you feel safer in. So I you know, I like to think even in the darkest times people can write like the darkest things and people will still respond well to it and vice versa. And I don't know if I fully captured what I was trying to say. To me, it's like when you are in a time of darkness and a time of despair, I think there is a real power to and desire for even among readers to read something that represents that darkness. And you you can say like this person gets it they see how bleak things are. It can be like a cathartic thing. Yeah, well. and like, if it's a horror, it could be like, you know, it's overwhelming and it wins. Um, and then if it's not horror and maybe it goes a different direction, like truly seeing the threat as it is and not sugarcoating it in a way, there's a power to that. Um, but that's also not to say that there's not an immense power to escapism and writing a story where you're you feel safe and things are cozy um that's just like a different kind of entertainment and sometimes that's what people want and um sometimes that's what people want to write so i think there's also like where do you want to go in your head when you're creating Mm -hmm. um so just to wrap all this up do you feel like this story over overall walks the line in the middle or do you think it's pretty pretty solidly in the more um 
cozy story region. Oh, I mean, I wouldn't call this cozy. Um, I, I, it's like that. That's maybe like there's two poles, right? <laughs> like cozy, everything is good. There's never any violence. You know, uh, this is like Animal Crossing territory <laughs> versus like full grim dark, dark you know, souls. Er, er, yeah, dark souls. Yeah. Things go wrong. People die a lot. Um, and, and obviously everything falls somewhere in between. I do think this is a more middle of the road story. Um, and uh, but there are certain tendencies um which i can't get into too much without spoiling things so um yeah i think i, I think let's move on from it because i know we spent a lot of time on it but I, I just think that is a fascinating question to think about when you're creating and and when you're reading like what it is your what it is you want when you're reading like what kind of stories are you interested in and it's interesting to analyze it too like if you're not actively thinking about it maybe yeah. go back and look at the things that you have been reading and say you might learn something about yourself and say oh yeah like, this is what i'm interested in. this is what i'm you know responding to yeah because some people do have like violent reactions almost to like either side right like you know they find it boring or they find it like oh god this is too dark i hate it um anyway uh okay so going on um the ways. Let's talk about the ways. So they uh, they basically are portal things that they go into, and then there's like a space with these with these bridges and like darkness, and they're going through. And um, there's this dark wind that we keep hearing about from Loyal that is at the edge of things. And at one point, they think something's in the darkness, and I think Matt fires an arrow at it. Um, and my, my, my guess is that must have been Pat and Fane because otherwise I don't know where the hell he was the whole time where he was supposedly following them. Yeah. I'm not sure. It, I, I, you could, I think you could take it either way. Yeah. It could be Pat and Fane. I think in hindsight, once we learned that he was like, you know, stalking them, yeah. it was probably him, but also like this, like, I, and again, this is another dark entity that I'm like unsure if it's exactly, the, no, no, actually, I think we actually sort of get confirmation that it's not because it attacks Pat and Fane, but then there's like some voices within this this wind yeah. that are like agreeing with him and some that are not. And so it's almost like this entity of evil that's like multiple different like forces fighting against each other. And yeah. I like the, there's a description of it as being like the ways that self themselves are a being, like they're a living thing. And every living thing can get parasites. And so the implication to me was that this this dark wind is a parasite that is like alive within the ways and like hunts the ways and has it's like a corruption. It's kind of um, similar to what we saw with like Mashadar or whatever it was called in, in Shadar Lagos. Yeah. And, and, and absolutely. And I, I think this is a recurring motif, right? Like if you think about it now, like we got Seydin, which has been tainted by the Dark One, and there's this like corruption to it. We have the Ways, which has a corruption to it. We have this city that has a corruption. So like this is a recurring thing for Robert Jordan. Um any ideas on like what that might mean, like what he's trying to get at there? It, it seems to me like the, the, it keeps being like an embodiment of like not only just like a being, but also like an idea or like because the the one we saw in Shadar Lagoth was like the people gave up their oath or whatever. Yeah. And that like created this toxicity that became like an actual I don't know, not living necessarily, but this like sort of entity and um I think this is probably something similar to that, right? Like some sort of like manifestation of evil that's not necessarily like from a specific evil being like Balsamon, but more maybe just like something that beings, creatures, you know, animals, humans, everybody like sort of this like evil like seeps out and is manifested by just, I don't know, life, the wheel. It's maybe a byproduct of life yeah. is having some, some of this evil. It feels to me like Robert Jordan wants to take like darkness and evilness that like lurks within the souls of men 
and give it a form of some kind. And that form may be sort of shifting and, and like wind like <laughs> or like a creeping thing, but like to take it and make it an entity that can be fought, which is in, in, of, in and of itself a little bit of a wish fulfillment too, right? Um, even if this thing is like, I don't know, you can't really fight it. So I don't know. It, it's like an interesting blend, right? Like it, it does make it manifest in a way. Um, and that does, I don't know. It just seems to, that's something I've noticed. It seems like he likes to do that. Um, and, and what that means, I guess I'm not really sure, but I'd be curious to know if people have thoughts. Overall, I thought the ways was really cool though. I, I, you know, very cool crossroads. I like that, that he like looks over, Rand looks over the side at one point and it's like darkness below, darkness above. And it's kind of like these, these bridges in between islands. And each time they hit an island, there's like, there's like posts that say what portal this would lead to. And I loved along the way, like they kind of, I think they said something about like going near the Manetherin. Uh, portal yeah and then they and then they talked about going past uh loyal's steading and they so they he was like oh this is where i could get off if i if i wanted to mm-hmm. and they were like we got to keep going they kept going so i really like that overall as another another period where i was just like really drawn into the story and couldn't really stop myself from reading and this is a this is something that was created in like a different age that has yeah. fallen out of use and we, we well and the, i think it's specifically said man-made right man yeah like specifically men i think like Sadin was, oh, I think, what made it. Yeah, right? I guess that's true. Although yeah. the, we, really we do hear a lot that. about the the connection between like men and women working together with both parts of the power, the one power, and how you're able to achieve a lot more when you work together in that way. Um, again, I think that's <laughs> trying to be a big theme, right? Like men and women working together for common good. Um, it's more powerful than they are alone. Um, and yeah, so uh, this is another demonstration of like, what magic is capable of in this world. One thing I thought this was kind of an interesting potential metaphor for in our world is air travel. I was thinking about how the way it's described of like you get you get in a ways and then you you time is sort of compressed, distance is compressed and you can step out and you'll be on the other side of the world. Um, like some amount of time will have passed, but not as much as you would expect to need to travel that distance. And I was like, this feels like something you come up with while you're on a plane. <laughs> yeah, which you probably were when you were listening. To yeah, this, right? I just recently was on a plane. So that is very much probably why it's in my head. But like, it is like that, like, right, you hop on it and like, all of a sudden you're going over mountains and you're going through different climates and all of a sudden you arrive somewhere completely different and some time has passed, but not nearly enough. It never feels like. Um, and And it's interesting that this is like, it used to be something that connected the world in the way that air travel does now and has since been lost. And how if you were to all of a sudden take away the ability to travel short, you know, in like a short amount of time to the other side of the world, that does change things dramatically. Um, and it is almost a magic that technology has given us in our day and age. So I, I, it's interesting that he's given us this like metaphor of it in the ways. Um, at least that's the way I read it. Yeah. Uh, another thing to note with this too is is like it's been corrupted. Yeah. Like it wasn't necessarily always like this. This creeping. Oh no no! It worked. It worked great for a while. I don't know how long, but yeah. Right. So I'll be excited to see if like you know, the end of this novel has some events that maybe drive back some darkness and maybe this is more usable than it was before. Mm. Um. So they uh, at the very end do encounter this this wind. They are able to just like barely escape in time. And they come out in the Borderlands, and we are in Shinar. We meet this uh, Lord Agomar at Faldara, and we learn a lot more about Lan. 
And I got to know what got to know what you thought Love of all this that. part. Love this part. Oh my god. Uh I didn't think we were getting anything like this. Again, I was surprised when we got started getting the ways stuff and we were traveling great distances to other parts of the map and I'm looking and I'm like, "Ooh, I you know, I looked at the map obviously already and I'm like, "Oh, the borderlands, huh?" I'm like the blight is there and like just like I I looked at it on the map so just the idea that we were going to get to travel that far and be that far out and then of course learning all these things we'd heard hints about like l- land being like the seven he's like the king the lord of the seven maybe towers. not even called wasn't even called the king I think at that point maybe like just the lord or something of he's, the seven towers yeah and all he's that. like a crownless king and so like then we get the actual reasons why in a way that like reminded me of the, some of the stories of Manetherin that we were getting. Mm-hmm. But we were getting sort of more recent history for, for Lan and he's like this Aragorn type figure yeah. where he's like very Aragorn. He's like he's a, you know, reluctant king. He's not a king. He's technically because there's yeah. no one to lead at this point. But if he ever wanted to, yeah, he could he could call an army in, in the a golden, moment's notice. If he ever raised the golden crane banner, thousands yeah. would flock to his banner. Right. Any predictions about that? Because <laughs> they held the line. That was the thing, right? They they held the line against against the forces of evil for yeah. as long as they could. And, and like, I love the story about how land was actually, like, taken out of that area. It was, like, they, they had all these soldiers and then only, like, five of them made it back. Yeah. Uh, and they had land and, and, like, it was this thing where they trained him all along the way. And he was, you know, when other people were playing with toys, he was playing with swords, learning with swords and became this ultimate warrior. A sword was placed in his infant hand. Something like that. Right. Said. Yeah. A bunch of kind of, I don't know, epic stuff, I guess. So he's like an extreme badass. Like there, you just like his whole history, everything is like, like all perfectly he's, set up. He's to be fought like, the, the darkness since he was an infant basically. And has yeah. always been learning to fight it. And like his whole life is devoted to fighting. So he's so comfortable in it. Right. Yeah. When he's out in the blight, he's just ready to, he's there for vengeance too. Like he's, he has no, that's why he was like raised in the blight. Like he knows it. Right. Yeah. He has no people to lead in battle or anything like that. But when he went, he would never lead anyone out into the blight because he doesn't want to lose lives. But he would go out there on his own for revenge and vengeance and fucking destroy some evil. And <laughs> yeah. so that's cool. But he's like, no, I'm not going to raise the banner. Because when he shows up in town, like people start cheering, like lots of people yep. know him. And they're like, oh, are you raising the banner? We've been waiting for you to raise the banner. <laughs> he's like, no, no, I'm not. So I'm excited to get more about the uh, the ways that he eventually became so attached to Moiraine because that's right. still lingering that's for me. That's a question, right? Like, why is he a warder? Like, when, after all this, like, how did that happen? I have no idea. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, what do you think of these borderlanders and, and the sort of their culture and attitudes? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of The Wall because I, you know, The Wall and Game of Thrones, <laughs> I, that's what I experienced first yeah. between these two stories. I mean, they're not a bunch um, of like fucking criminals, though, who are, no. who are like poorly conscripted into The Wall. It's almost like what, no, what it used to be, maybe, like when we hear tales of what, you know, the, um, what's what's the name of them? The Night's Watch. The Night's Watch, like what they yeah. used to be. Right. But instead, this is like cultures that live along the border and like par- fighting against the shadow spawn is like a way of life, right? Right. Um, which is hardcore like that's yeah. pretty that's pretty wild they talk about like a battle against trollocs that they're going to be outnumbered 10 to 1 mm-hmm. and and like i was like shit you guys are probably not going <laughs> to do too well out there hopefully you make it out all right and uh they're gonna fight at the gap right yeah, yeah. and apparently it's like about to happen right like they're sending soldiers are there like ready to battle i think they're going to send another battalion they're going to send a small group of people but they actually end up going with our party into or at least on the way to right the well they want he wanted to send like a, a like a hundred men with her when he right. learns that they're going to try and find the eye he's like let me send a hundred men with you and she's like no none of them are can come we have to do this on right. our own only these farm boys yeah only these to 
Tavir. Tavir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, and then we got Padden Fane uh, arrives, and he is being very Gollum-like, I think, in his right. obsession and the way he has been tortured by the dark, like the shadow spawn. Um, yeah. We hear we hear his story because he gets all of it. He reveals all of it to Moraine. He was a character that I feel like I overlooked a little bit. I, like in hindsight, I'm well, like, oh, I understandably should've... so. Yeah, because he kind of is introduced. He seems like he's just like a normal merchant guy. And then you're like, oh, probably, sh-. you know, Tom was also introduced basically the same time. And right. Tom was a massive character and he's introduced and then sort of goes away. And then, and then he's like running away from Rand in a city at one point, And you're like, OK, well, weird. But then the re- the re- revelation that he's like a 40 year dark friend and all this stuff, I was like, oh, shit. So he's like going to continue to be like an, a problem going forward because well, he's got he like a makes sp- it through. special kind of evil to him too. Moraine says, right? Like, and there's more more mysteries about him. She doesn't yet understand. And um, the way she describes it, she's like, you know, it's some of the most vile, disgusting thoughts you could ever have yeah. are like in this person. And he's just like, the, she's pure, basically touched by the evil to the point. Oh, that, there's a fun, speaking of that, there's a funny part where it's like, and he debased himself and the things he yeah. did to debase himself in front of the dark one, you would make your eyes water or something. And then, yeah. and then later on, like, I think one of the Forsaken says like, debase yourself before me or something. And I'm like, what? What do you want us to do? What are we doing here? Is like, yeah. is it getting kinky? Like, what's going on? <laughs> could be you know potentially that's i heard that that's what balls and one is all about like, all his about name it. starts with b- balls obviously so <laughs> i'm kind of curious what was he doing <laughs> <laughs> it's just whatever it is is, is so unbelievably profane that you just can't even comprehend it Luke. all right okay guess i can comprehend a lot uh all right um let's move on to the final chunk here uh, the group enters the blight in search of the Eye of the World, guarded by the fabled Green Man. The Eye is revealed as a pool of pure Sedin, and when the companions exit, they are confronted by the forsaken Agenor and Bothamel. Bothamel dies at the hand of the Green Man, and Agenor is consumed by the One Power as he battles Rand for control of Sedin at the Eye of the World. Guided by blind luck and extinct- instinctive knowledge, Rand uses the supply of Seydin to decimate the Trolloc army and defeat Balzaman. Afterwards, Rand realizes to his own horror that he channeled the One Power and that he is condemned to a fate of insanity and rotting death. The book ends with Moraine's ominous statement to herself that the dragon is reborn. Okay, so uh, also they found the Horn of Valir. As like their loot that they find after the fight. Yep. Um, <laughs> um, so okay. So let's yeah. Let's back up. They go to the blight and they arrive at the eye of the world. Uh, I referenced this earlier, but like this part is, gets very surreal to me, mm-hmm. and I think some of it is by design. But I also think like Robert Jordan didn't do a great job of like staging this and keeping me grounded in like where everybody was. Because yep. I, I lose track of, like, what is exactly happening in the space, what the space even looks like, right. who is where, and... I think, like you said, I think it may be, like, the chaos of the situation yeah. you meant it It definitely, I don't, I don't know. It, it works in a certain way, but I I don't know. I, I don't particularly love the way this is written, um, mm-hmm. even though I, I do concede that, like, I think some surrealness is intentional. Uh but yeah, I get a little confused when I read this part, and, and I've read it a few times now. 
Yeah, and, and I think that he he's sort of priming us for this throughout the story with the way that the dream. Yeah. I'm never sure when I'm in a dream. Yeah, when he in it within his chapters, absolutely. And then you're like along the way, he's like, and it was a dream, and you're like, oh shit, okay. So like with this, he's kind of leaning into like, what space are we in? Are we still? You know, he shoots all over the place, but I think we should talk more about sort of as soon as they get there, just like re- meeting the Green Man. Uh, I thought it was awesome, very tree tree beard esque, yeah. like you said. But it's like this oasis, right? Well, he's this, also like, kind of like. Uh, What's his name from Lord of the Rings? Oh, Tom Bombadil. He's a little bit like Tom Bombadil. Maybe not as like goofy, but like kind of mysterious, ancient, connected to right. the to the earth kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So his this like oasis that he's been protecting, like he seems very like ancient, powerful, all those things. He's been and he's been protecting potentially one of the most important areas that I've know of within the story so far. And uh, it's the eye of the world. And he like refuses to go in there. Right. So he's just on the outskirts, like pr- protecting it. And, um, you know, they go in and, and learning that the eye of the world was just like pure Sadin was right. interesting to me as well. And I was like, it's oh, like a shit. pool like, of power, some untainted, untainted, pure Sadin, um, as far as I can tell, at least they sort of go in there and Moran's like, this is what we're here to protect. And then they come out and then we get the reveal that Balzaman's like followers. He like they, they, there's more named, I believe, like the, the Forsaken, I think they're called, right? The Forsaken, the Dreadlords. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you definitely get some name drops. Yeah. The seal is very close. I guess the way that it's described is like some of them are sealed more deeply within this like seal that Balzaman has been sealed in. And these two were like right at the surface. So like as the, the darkness crept and pushed that seal back, they were able to pop out. And it, I was unclear at first because they seemed like they weren't actually corporeal. Like they, 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 right. They didn't seem like they were solid at first, but then it they were affecting things, so clearly they were. But I love this idea of adding these because you know to have Balzamon at the end of the first book would be, I think, an oversight in a, in a way. So to have these mini bosses show up to be like still very powerful, clearly just taking on more rain and and doing whatever they want, seemingly like unstoppable. Uh, I I thought it was a good way, and then ultimately we do have sort of a a conflict with Balzamon that happens. Yeah, kind of, maybe. <laughs> it gets weird. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so let's talk about these Forsaken, right? Um, you were asking if they were corporeal. I, I guess unclear. They're definitely like, the implication is because they are so close to the surface, they have aged more um, over mm-hmm. time. And so they're both like desiccated, zombie, mummy-like at first. Um, yeah. They're like skins falling off. One of them has like a mask of skin on their face. I think that's Bathamel. He he wears like a leather mask or something, but then it's like, is it like his skin or is it a mask he's wearing? I'm, I was kind of unclear. Um, but I did actually read a little bit about these two um, after the fact because I, I was like, who are these guys again? And I wanted to remind myself of some of the lore. Now, some of this stuff gets dropped like later on in the books, like here or there. And it's kind of hard to piece together. And then I think some of this is also from like compendium materials that came out. Right. Um, but Aganor, he apparently is the one who created the shadow spawn. Um, wow. There was some sort of time where uh, Bothamel like was charged with gathering a bunch of humans together. And then Aganor in a very sort of a Dr. Mengele from like the like Nazis kind of way. Mm-hmm. He like performed a bunch of experiments on all of these humans in which he w- uh, was ev- eventually able to combine them with animals to create the Trollocs and to create other shadow spawn. And it's said that he killed like 50,000 people over the course of these experiments. 
And so, like, they were very, like, they worked together, I guess. Bothamil, like, gathered a bunch of the people, and then he, like, did all the experiments and created the Shadow Spawn. So we're, we're seeing some, like, important figures in the history of the creation of the, the Shadow Spawn armies um, in these two individuals. Um, they, they both have a lot of history, right? Because they're these, the Forsaken are these, like, generals, almost, in the army that keep getting spun out by the wheel repeatedly. And who they're sort of the opposites of like a Rand and a Matt, right? Like they're the the dark version of that. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's interesting that there's it, this, this leans a lot into that horror element, which is like I think something they're trying to make very present in the show. Um, and because these guys are like really hideous looking, and like they're very evil, right? <laughs> like um, we hear about the stuff they did in these different wars. It's like okay, those guys are real bad. Like my criticism of it is that. We've been seeing Bathamil throughout, but I think it's been kind of unclear if that's him or if that's Belzamon. I'm still unclear about what, when, who's who at different times. And then Agenor is like basically introduced in this moment. Um, and for them to be sort of the big bag of the book, to me, it feels kind of abrupt for them to show up and then get defeated like within the same chapter, basically. <laughs> um, and it doesn't feel appropriate for Forsaken to me. It's like, it's almost too easy. My feeling going forward is that like everything that happened here is like beaten but not defeated. Like right. I think like these I, I assume that all the Forsaken will be spun back out. I assume that like these even these guys who seemingly died or whatever will show back up again because that's the like the life cycle of this story kind of in a in a way. But you know, that's just my theory is that like we, we could see basically like I think an interesting way to see this would be all of the Forsaken, Reborn, and Balsamon, and then, you know, whatever forces of good we've we've, we've amassed over right. 12, 14 books or whatever it is, and then seeing them clash in ways. I think that would be like a big a big um, set piece, obviously. I don't know if that would be an ending or if it would just be a big battle somewhere, but uh, the way that, that everybody's reborn and the way that people spin back out and everything, is it continues to be really interesting to me, and I think, like about how and we'll get into this right now i think when Rand touches the Satan power mm -hmm. the eye of the world and it seems like he's not even operating his own body i was wondering if it's like the past the past dragons are also like in that moment helping you like like respond to things that maybe you weren't ready for because he's clearly not able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with balesamon right now but he does, and I think it's like maybe because of the like uh, retained power from the other dragons all stacked on top of each other to then become then touch Rand and then like give him you know power and fighting prowess like beyond his years and because like he basically talks about how like he wasn't even operating his body so it just it was it seemed like to me like it was all reactionary because of like this this idea of this power that's like grown over time with each iteration maybe and then now being used and also like guided by the former dragons and stuff just a theory no no i love that and i think that is you're, you're honestly hitting the nail on the head uh i i, I had some notes about how like you kind of lose rand here like the character mm -hmm. of rand is kind of gone and instead it's just this kind of hero who's fighting and doing mm -hmm. things and he seems to like know things he shouldn't know when identify things and i guess the implication is that's either lose theron or like you said previous versions of the dragon uh or maybe all of the above and that is a big you're, you're touching on what is going to be coming a big theme going forward for Rand and how um, I, I think 
here he does an okay job of it, but I, in my opinion, later on, this is explored in a way that is more interesting and more well realized is mm-hmm. the idea of like Rand trying to hold on to a sense of self while yet using the knowledge and influence of these other dragons um, and Luz Theron in particular and what that's like for him. Cause there's even a moment when he, after this where he like doesn't recognize Nynaeve and Egwene and then he kind of does. And he's like, Oh, he's like, Oh, that's who, of course that's who that is coming to he forgot his own name he yeah. forgot everything and then like over time he's like almost like reforming all of his right. memories refiring those synapses or something yeah and like that's kind of scary right like the idea of like completely mm-hmm. losing yourself to something like this and so i think you know going forward rand's not only is he worried about losing his mind and uh, uh from the taint right like and like the madness that we hear about but also the influence of these other versions of himself and how at least in this moment, he felt like he kind of gets absorbed for a time and he almost loses himself. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is, again, something to track as you go forward in the series, whether or not we do on the podcast or not. Um, right. I think that's a big question for Rand. Lan and Moiraine are like dispatched pretty quickly yeah. um, within this battle. So there's like, boom, boom, they're they're taken out. And then Egwene, I think, is trying to, to like fight as well. And Rand's trying to protect her. And then... Like things start, like you said, things get kind of confusing because it starts to be of like oh, yeah. unclear. At one point, uh, Balthazar or whatever his name is, Balthamel, Balthamel, whatever his name is, I he, I think he like grabs Nynaeve and is like, oh, I haven't been near a woman in a long time, and like he gets all creepy about her, and like um, he's all disgusting. So I guess that you know it's like threatening the the woman so for, reason, for some reason I thought one of them didn't speak. Right? Am I am I right? In Maybe Agnar like, thought- doesn't speak. He might okay. be silent well, the whole time. Rand, as he's like kind of touched this power, he doesn't even he just he doesn't even like touch it in my memory. It just like comes to him kind of. Yeah. Or does he get closer to it or something? But then he starts to see this like coil connected to this co- the, yeah this cord or something like connecting right. it and it's like going off into something into somewhere and you're like into oh. the into the sky or something <laughs> right yeah. and it's like dark and then he sees like a coil of him on himself yeah. of light obviously Agenor absorbs a bunch of this power and like burns himself out and it's like right. the glitter something is said about oh he was too greedy and like tried to absorb too much into himself and we've heard mm-hmm. reference to that before about like you can only wield so much power before it like kills you. Right. Yeah. So, and we've kind of seen it with Lewis Theron, right? Yeah. Like he, like kind maybe of self-immolated maybe, when yeah. he became the mountain and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then we're like sucked away in a, but in a weird way to where you don't really see the connection to like being in a different scene in a novel like this. You're just reading. Well, r- real quick, before that happens, there's this moment between the Green Man and 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 Bethamel where they kind of kill each other in an interesting way, right? Like he, uh, the Green Man gets. Uh, dealt this like blow that kills him that you wouldn't think would but then at the same time he infects him with like mushrooms and like 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 a uh, fungus decaying, decaying and fungus, fungus and stuff yeah. and that ends up killing killing him they kind of kill each other um but then yeah yeah then agreement gets like grabbed and like torched with like fire yeah. and all this other stuff and then at the last second he like holds out like a like an acorn or something and then like the acorn grows to this like five thousand year old amazing right. tree and yeah it gets real weird <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, you're right. And then it transitions to this battle, maybe with the Dark One, who, it, it, and it like kind of takes place at the gap. And we hear reference to it later. And uh, they're like doing battle, and he has he's wielding a sword of light, 
at one point. Yeah. Yeah. I was unclear if it was like sort of transitioning between different areas like Balzaman like was like there is some weird inner space and then they were there at the battle like transitioning area locations and environments and yeah like he he like he's like he pulls out a sword and it's not his sword it's this like sword of light Mm -hmm. and you're like you know that's if there's if there's not a key that you're the dragon reborn. It would it, like if you have a shining light sword. I think yeah. that that typically says that you're probably the dragon reborn. And then he like goes and like ha- re- as a reaction, he's sort of like screaming and banging on the ground. And just him like banging on the ground is like sending shock waves and killing Trollocs. And he's sending blasts and stuff. And like not even meaning to do these yeah. things, but just like decimating and like controlling. Like we'll, we'll hear about it later that like just like the generals just see, or the king I think just sees some being god of some kind come down and just start saving them and and killing everything and um, it gets real big right like and and this is something that i am realizing more and more the more i read it's like this is going to be difficult for a show to capture (laughs) yeah guarantee that it's not it's not as as uh the scale isn't quite this this big for this first season especially Especially, yeah they just can't um, I'll be curious to see what they can actually attempt um, because mm-hmm. uh, this is just book one. Things get wilder. Um, yeah, I was surprised that ultimately he kind of defeated uh, Balesamon in this moment because like the whatever uh, power overtook him and, and allowed him to just sort of like he stabbed him and he cut his coil and he did all that stuff to kind of disconnect him. Yeah. And he seemed pretty defeated. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, probably not finally defeated. Yeah. Like the, I mean, we have know, a lot more books to go through so right. uh, <laughs> um yeah and i mean i think moraine even says like the dark one was dealt a serious blow here but not like mm-hmm. defeated um and but it is it's cool to think of it within the story about how how far along the darkness is in this first book yeah you know like it's very close to the end of the world even just for a first book but then you can beat defeat the darkness and i love the way that everything's described the winter starts to end and you know everything's like like the the darkness has been the blight back, like, is significantly. like less severe yeah, yeah all this stuff mm-hmm. um they do find this like broken seal and it's a physical like ceramic looking thing that looks like um it's kind of described as looking like a yin and yang symbol um to me it mm-hmm. just doesn't have the dots i think it's just like black and white together and two these two teardrops kind of coiling around each other um and the, it's broken and this was the seal that kept them in and i think you mentioned it earlier and you're right on they were at the at sort of uppermost layer and the seal is broken and it sort of released them and then the implication is that beneath that there's further seals that is holding in maybe more of these forsaken mm-hmm. who've been imprisoned um, so you can sort of extrapolate out from that that as more seals maybe start to break more things are going to be released right but it's interesting like these the, the seal was broken and then they defeated these two seemingly yeah. for now and that's why the darkness has fallen back yeah. but it, as more get broken if multiple it, get broken it seems like the seals release right like it releases right. more darkness and more evil and stuff yeah, yeah. and the the like treasure trove was was awesome yeah. obviously very fantasy but uh, and like and like why are the seals breaking we don't really know that right or is it just yeah. the dark one is able to somehow break uh, them i just assumed that like the Sadin that 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 Rand sort of interacted with was part of it. And when the Satan was, was sort of taken from there, that l- released that seal. Mm. In a so sense. you're saying that the events at the eye of the world is itself broke the seal. That's what I assumed. Yeah. Yeah. But then I guess, or uh, even within the story, I think that they were sort of already out before they got to the eye of the world. Right. Although those two were like in the eye of the world and their entrance, maybe their entrance broke the seal. I don't know. I'm actually a little bit unclear yeah. on that. Um, 
yeah. people who know more might might know the the ins and outs of that. Um, but okay, I mean, I think uh, this sort of ends with Moraine ominously saying that the dragon has been reborn. Oh, they also found the dragon banner, um, which I think is is cool because it's clearly a dragon, but they don't know what it is. They're like, there's some sort of scaled creature that looks very regal, and I don't know, it's kind right. of serpent-like. Like, yeah. the idea that this is a dragon is actually not known in this world. And instead, a dragon means specifically the man who is, like, the who can wield the power and fight the Dark One. That's what a dragon is. And this other symbol is like, I don't know what this is, but I guess it's the dragon symbol. Um, so I, I, it's kind of funny how he reframes that and they don't even recognize yeah. what it is. And, uh, I mean, of course, the horn is very interesting to me as well because, like, I think it's, what, the horn of Valir? Valir, yeah. So c- supposedly yeah. can summon the, like, power of the dead to, like, fight the Dark One. Yeah. Right. Sounds awesome to me. And I know that there's a horn associated with the next book, so I'd, I'd be interested it's to see It's called The Great Hunt. And we've heard about right. the hunt for the horn, so you're making a connection there that may be true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, okay, uh, we are at the end of the book here. Uh, final thoughts on this novel as a first novel. Uh, sounds like you would be interested to read more <laughs> if you had just encountered this. Um, I can tell you that middle school Luke was very excited to read the book too after he finished this book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this this book sort of hit me in a way that like most books don't. You know, I think I, I, I enjoy reading almost anything and this one is hitting me like right in the sweet spot of like the things that I grew up reading yeah. And just like the kind of fantasy that I respond to, and it's it's very nostalgic in ways, and then in other ways it's just fun to go on like large. I love long, expansive stories where you can really live with characters for a long time, mm-hmm. and like this story is shaping up to be that. It's epic, right? Like in in every sense of that term for fantasy, it's like this is you can tell it's going. It's got the idea that it's got another fourteen books ahead of you. You're like, damn, there's got to be so much to come. Um, do you have any other overall thoughts you want to drop? Just, just that, like, um, I, I love the story. I think it really lived up to the hype, and and like, it's sort of, I understand why people feel the way that they do about it now, because it's like, it's sort of maybe not humble beginnings, but it's got a great foundation to like then tell really expansive stories going forward, and and um, yeah, I just really enjoy it. Yeah, and and you know, similarly, it was really fun for me to go back and reread this book and. Um, I, I don't think it's like a perfect fantasy novel. Um, I am still kind of conflicted on just how much it relies on Lord of the Rings for so many mm-hmm. of its of its plot beats and character archetypes. And um, in the same way, you know, it's funny. I just uh, was doing uh, some listening to this band, Greta Van Fleet. We've talked a little bit about them before. Um, and they're so, they are like trying to be Led Zeppelin in so many ways. Like the singer sounds just like uh, what's it, Robert Plant. And I was reading about it. And, like some people feel very conflicted about that. Like some people hate that. They're like, do your own thing. Like don't just try and be another band. And like other people are like, no, it's really cool. It's like you're bringing back the classics and you're bringing it to a, a new because they're very young. I don't know if you know this. They're like 20 years old or some yeah. shit. Um, right. And you're like bringing it to a new audience. And I think that's a similar question to this, right? Like, I can see some echoes of that debate in, like, the Wheel of Time and what it's doing with The Lord of the Rings. Like, it's almost like he's singing in in Tolkien's voice in, in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he's doing something new. He's bringing it to a new audience, potentially. I don't know. And it's it's this ongoing question of, like, uh, authenticity and originality and where do those lines end and, and begin. I, I don't really know the answer to it, but... I still feel a little weird about it. Like, I don't think I could personally write something that's this heavily influenced. 
because it would feel too much like copying to me. But I'm also not going to like say that people can't do this. Yeah, it's an interesting exercise to think about because what, you know, Greta Van Fleet is using this to sort of launch their careers and find a, an interesting nostalgic voice. And then going forward, what if they evolve yeah. and continue to become their own band and continue to have their own voice and create great music? And yeah, and then and so the same case here, it's like, I think a certain benefit of the doubt I at least am giving to Robert Jordan for for the first novel, at least, you know, maybe a couple, but like, like sort of starting, starting because you're so, you know, inspired by these other artists. I don't think that it's inherently bad. I just think if you if you wrote 14 books that were basically just an expanded Lord of the Rings and like continue to be this closely associated, then I yeah. think it's a, you know, I, I mean, like I, totally there's an argument to be had. Like, people are going to feel. I mean, like you could see that there are people who are going to read this book and be like, oh, fuck this. This is wait, right. this is stealing from Tolkien. Right. Right. Yeah. Or regurgitating Tolkien or something like do something original like people, could, you know, so like I can see the arguments against this. But yeah, I, I ultimately I had fun with it and I have to like, I guess it's like it loses a few points in my eyes because it's not as original right. and wholly crafted. But like it that does change over time. Anyway, um, let's talk about the things I hinted at earlier. Um Brandon Sanderson has weighed in a little bit on these early episodes, and I, I thought he had some really interesting things. Now, this is part of a longer Reddit post, um, which you can you can go find. Um, but I, this this Forbes article uh, pulled some interesting quotes, and I will link the Forbes article in the show notes. So, as we've talked about before, Brandon Sanderson is like a co- consulting producer uh, for the show, and he revealed that he talked a lot with Rafe Judkins about some of the changes they were making. And he, in the m- biggest one he has most contention with is the change to have Perrin's wife introduced and killed in the first episode. Um, he isn't married and he doesn't kill anyone on accident in this first book. Um, so it's a big change. And uh, according to Judkins, it was an attempt to give Perrin a more compelling backstory and help viewers get to know his character better from the outset of the story. Judkins even said that when he would talk to people, he would say, what things did you not like about the books? And one thing that pretty consistently came up was that people felt like they didn't really know Matter Parent, especially until later in the books. You can't really afford in a television show for one or two of your seven leads to not be characters and, and that really pop until season four, right? Uh, so one of our big tasks was to make sure that each of these five kids from Two Rivers, you can understand the kernel of the story that they'll face in season one and through the whole series in that first episode. Okay, so that was his thinking, right? Um, now Sanderson says the biggest thing I disagreed with was Perrin's wife. I realized that there was a good opportunity here for Perrin to be shown with rage issues and to be afraid of the potential beast inside of him. I liked that idea, but didn't like it being a wife for multiple reasons. First off, it feels like the disposable wife trope, AKA the woman in the fridge, which we touched on. Uh, so we, we picked up on that beyond that. I think the trauma having of having killed your wife is so huge the story this is telling can't realistically deal with it in a way that's responsible. Perrin killing his wife, then going off on an adventure, really bothers me even still. I have faith that the writers won't treat it lightly, but still, that kind of trauma dealt with realistically and responsibly is really difficult for an adventure series to deal with. When I when I saw Perrin and I see him in other scenes outside of this, I can't believe him being happy, going on an adventure, and like it's like it's all it's it, it, as a realistic depiction. It would be entirely he would be he would be a shell. You know what I mean? He wouldn't be able to express anything. Yeah. So this is interesting. Uh, there's a, a suggestion he had that uh, was not taken by Riff Judkins. 
He said, I suggested that he kill Master Lewin instead. As much as I hate to do Lewin dirty like that, I think the idea that Rafe and the team had here is a good one for accelerating Perrin's plot. Accidentally killing your master steps the trauma back a little, but gives that same motivation and hesitance. Uh, one thing I didn't want Wheel of Time adaptation to try and do is lean into being a tonal Game of Thrones replacement, i.e., I don't want to lean into the grimdark ideas. Killing Perrin's wife felt edgy just to be edgy. I totally agree. I think they should have killed the master. Yeah. Um, I think that, that would have been a way better choice if they had to do this like that. Like if they had to introduce the rage like this, uh, it makes so much more sense to me. Yeah, I like that. Right. And I, I think the suggestion's pretty good. I mean, it's still killing somebody to service a plot. But again, if it's if it's his master and it's a guy, it leads a little away from some of these problematic tropes. And beyond that, as he says, the trauma is not so intense as killing your own fucking wife would be. Um, the just unimaginable trauma of that is really hard to drop on a character in what should be a fairly fun adventure series. And instead, yeah, we have that. And that's something we both picked up on. So I was kind of glad to see that we're on the same page with uh, Brandon Sanderson here. I know one other thing he said that he wasn't a big fan of was Nynaeve trying to kill Lan. Um, Lan says, oh, you did try and kill me when he like takes her out or whatever. But it it may seem like a small moment, but he said that... um, in his opinion, Nynaeve is such a healer at heart that he can't imagine she would try and kill a man who's just trying to sort of protect someone like Lan is doing in this moment. He's trying to protect, protect Moraine. Um, so he just didn't agree with that character beat. Um, and so I think that's something to track going forward is like um, that whole thing about Game of Thrones. He said like the tone of Wheel of Time is different than that. Um, and it's more f- sort of fun and... Um, light while still having elements of darkness he said he he recognizes that there is elements of horror present in the series and he thinks robert jordan would actually approve of that but he um was constantly seems like pushing on rafe judkins to not go too far in the game of thrones grimdark direction and to keep it as more appropriate to the tone of wheel of time as we've been seeing in this book so that's something i think to track going forward it seems like Brandon Sanderson is one of the people who is sort of pushing back on that and, and how much Rafe Judkins actually listens to him uh, will be an open question because it sounds like sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he didn't take his advice. So um, some of this stuff, it seems like Brandon's just finding out when he's watching the show. He's like curious, like whether or not he's like, I, I gave him advice. I wonder whether or not he took it. So even though he's right. involved, he's not like that involved. You know, what he's I mean? not in the room. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, don't know. I think that's just something to track going forward and something that um, we'll, we'll look at in our as we finish out se- season one, um, which we will be doing two weeks from now because next week we are going to be doing a christmas movie which we will talk about at the end of the episode so stay tuned for that but if you enjoyed this episode please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on uh and if you're on youtube make sure to subscribe and like the video uh because that helps us with the algorithms all that good stuff yeah and be sure to connect with us on social media we're on facebook twitter and instagram all of those at ink to film we do have the Council of Inklings on Facebook, which is a group where we you know, post all kinds of stuff. Like-minded people are in there, but we also have our Discord link 
in there as well as if you wanted to message us on any social media platform we can send that yep. to you which is another avenue we've been using to talk to our listeners and if you wanted to support our podcast in another way we have a patreon we have a lot of cool stuff on there we'd love for you to check it out um, a little bit of financial support goes a long way for us uh, so we would love to have your support there and we have bonus episodes that we release monthly that you'd be able to to, to listen to so that would be super cool and we'd appreciate it and thank you to Sirius Beat for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. All that's left is to announce our special Christmas project, which we are going to be doing The Green Knight, uh, which you may have seen the trailers if you're in the fantasy world like I am. Um, it's a movie that I didn't watch when it came out. Uh, I was kind of sad because I missed it. But at the time, it was like, I don't know if I want to go to the theaters right now. <laughs> and then we decided we were going to cover it for Christmas because word has it that there's some sort of Christmas connection. You've seen it, so you know more than me. But uh, yeah, it's it's based off of some real sort of mythology. Um, I think it's like Camelot stuff. I'm not really sure. Um, there's some sort of like epic poem or something that this is based on. I'll find out more as we read that and watch this movie and compare the two. Yeah, I don't want to give any like sort of first impressions on it. I just want you to go in basically cold okay. because it's uh, it's an experience. Cool. I'm very excited for that. Uh, hopefully you all join us for our Christmas episode next week when we do the Green Knight. And then again, we will be back the following week to finish out Wheel of Time and give our final thoughts on the series and that first season and uh, how it compares to the book, which now James has read. James has read a Wheel of Time book. Hey, I've read a Wheel of Time book, <laughs> finally. Uh, and until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.